Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by Dr. Matt Carlson, and we will be discussing adult cochlear implantation. Dr. Carlson, thanks again for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, again, we usually go through a given pathology when we have an episode, but for this one, we wanted to focus specifically on cochlear implantation, and uh, for this episode, more specifically on adult cochlear implantation, um, understanding that there will be some overlap with some of the pathologies that we discuss in later episodes. But Dr. Carlson, to start, when someone presents to your clinic who is likely a candidate for cochlear implantation, uh, what do they usually present with? Yeah, so when we're specifically talking about adult cochlear implantation, uh, most patients are presenting with gradual progressive hearing loss over time. Oftentimes, there's one ear that is better than the other ear. Most of the patients have been using hearing aids for a longer period of time, and they're starting to say that their hearing aids just aren't cutting it. They've had their hearing aids reprogrammed, or they've had several different pairs over the years or even decades, and they're getting to the point that particularly when there's uh, background noise, they're having more difficulty. It's often a very gradual or... Um, indolent thing, and it's frequently that they'll say things like, you know, I just don't go out as much as I used to. I don't like going out. I avoid social uh, social situations or social gatherings because when there's any background noise or there's multiple speakers, forget it. I just can't participate, and there's often this element of social withdrawal. So there's different ways people can present, but that's, in the adult population, probably the most common presentation. And when you see these folks, what are some specific questions you should ask um, understanding that hearing loss is a large part of this, but what else would you ask them? I think one thing that's really critical to think about when you're um, looking at this topic is the understanding that cochlear implantation in adults are highly underutilized. If you look at the number of people who are potential candidates for cochlear implantation compared to the number of people who are treated, um, the current statistic is that less than 10% of people that might qualify for an implant in adults uh, don't undergo in- implantation. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including limited awareness, uh, poor understanding of the current guidelines, lack of best uh, referral patterns uh, between audiology and um, ENT surgery. And even within audiology training and uh, ENT training, a lot of people just don't get a lot of exposure to cochlear implantation. So as a, in my opinion, if you're starting to think that they might benefit from a cochlear implant and you're on the fence, you should, uh, in those situations, for sure, you should consider referring somebody. I think we should err towards early referral rather than uh, waiting and wondering if the person might benefit. There are some good screening questions, but I, before I go into a couple good screening questions, I want to emphasize the point that when you encounter a patient in the clinical setting for any sort of visit, whether it's hearing loss or something else, I think we as a whole cons- uh, consistently underestimate the degree of hearing loss. Patients who can look directly at your face in a quiet setting and understand you uh, it does not mean that they um, have very good hearing. It's remarkable that it always kind of astounds a lot of the residents when they're in the room and I'm talking face-to-face with a cochlear implant patient just speaking and they're understanding everything I'm saying and I'm telling I'm going to implant them. And the the issue is uh, the clinic setting does not replicate the real-world situation where there's multiple talkers, a lot of background noise, and social gatherings where most of these patients are most of their day. So um, having said all of that, uh, I think there are some generally good screening questions that you can help to get at whether or not a patient's a good candidate. So if you, uh, one question is, can you carry out a conversation with another person if you can't directly see their face? 
Related to that, can you carry out a conversation on a telephone as long as the volume's turned up enough? That's kind of the same thing. You don't have uh, visual cues um, to help guide you. Do you struggle to communicate with others in large gatherings, such as uh, church or um, uh, social gatherings? And then related to that, do you no longer really participate in those sorts of events because you have such a difficult time going to them that you feel frustrated uh, or um, you, you get to the point where you think it's not worth it for you? Those are very common uh, good screening questions. Related to that is the, is the patient stay, uh, saying something like, I've tried multiple hearing aids and they're just not really doing it for me uh, despite spending a lot of money on it. To me, that's another red flag that, uh, that they might be considered a, a very reasonable candidate for a cochlear implant. And can you speak a little bit to the epidemiology of these patients? Who's the typical patient who walks in ready for a cochlear implant? So um, in this population, we're, so we're specifically talking about adults. Currently, it's uncommon, at least in my practice, that I'll see a prelingual adult coming in for an assessment. So somebody that was born with congenital hearing loss or even perilingual, meaning they uh, lost their hearing during the time of language, speech and language development. Most of the people I'm seeing are postlingual. It means they have adult onset or later in life onset um, uh, hearing loss. And um, those situations, it's uh, the age range varies significantly. It can be anywhere from you know the 20s to 90s uh, for patients. The factors that lead to hear sensory and hearing loss for these patients are variable. The most common reasons a person has hearing loss in adulthood include presbycusis, uh, noise exposure throughout their lifetime, repetitive loud noise exposure, either occupational or recreational, exposure to ototoxicities, um, and then a lot of people have a hereditary component um, where they'll have a fi family history of hearing loss before the age of 50 or 60, and that's a major contributing uh, factor. We always think about, whenever we say, what's the cause of hearing loss, we always want to put it on one thing and say, oh, you know, that person has a genetic uh, condition that's leading to hearing loss. But in actuality, like most things in medicine, the condition is multifactorial. Most people have more than one hit that's leading them to have the hearing loss. So. For example, somebody over the age of 70 who has hearing loss is probably presbycusis, but a lot of times they've had a history of loud noise exposure. In my area, a lot of people have uh, noise exposure to farm work or occupational noise exposure, recreational noise exposure from hunting, uh, things like that. So uh, we'd like to make it nice and clean, but most of the time uh, we're losing hearing gradually from many, many different causes. We all start out with, when we're born, we start out with about 15,000 inner hair cells. And every, every day we live, every time we're ex exposed to louder noise exposure or other insults, we lose those hair cells. And that's what contributes, uh, for most people, contributes to sensory hearing loss. And is there a gender predilection? Um, most of the epidemiological data, particularly for presbycusis uh, and occupational noise exposure, would suggest that males are at higher risk uh, for acquiring hearing loss uh, than women. And in the clinical setting, is there anything you're looking for on physical exam when you evaluate these patients? So again, in the adult population, um, in contrast to the pediatric population, most of the, most of the adult patients, at least in my practice, don't have uh, concomitant inner ear malformations, or at least certainly not severe ones. I will say occasionally, maybe once a year, twice a year, I'll see an adult with bilateral EVA that's finally entering the stage where they could consider cochlear implantation or large vestibular aqueduct or Mondini malformation, IP2. Um, but most of the time, they don't have malformations. Um, so on examination findings, of course, you'd look for craniofacial abnormalities, multiple pits in front of their ear, accessory tragus. You'd look for um, 
other conditions that might uh, help you determine if they have uh, underlying condition. But again, the adult population, that's not very common. I, I do, particularly for the elderly patients, I do really try to hone in on what their overall cognitive status is when I'm speaking with them. A lot of times, and that's easy to, to disguise, a lot of times people with some cognitive impairment, their family will come with them and they'll kind of rely on their family and the family members will answer the questions. And sometimes it goes, it goes unnoticed. So I try to directly ask the patient a lot of these questions. And if I'm starting to get the feeling that they're not remembering things that they should remember closely, I'll, I'll be very uh, frank and ask the family and the patient, are you having problems with memory impairment? And I'll try to elicit some of that information. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be a candidate for a cochlear implant, but that might portend a poor outcome potentially because they may have an issue with central processing despite giving them good access to sound through the cochlear implant. And moving on briefly to pathophysiology, you already discussed the main causes of hearing loss. Can you dive a little bit deeper into the pathology around hearing loss? Yeah, I think if you understand the pathophysiology of sensory neural hearing loss, you'll understand why cochlear implants uh, work in most people. So as I alluded to earlier, we're all born with a certain amount of inner ear hair cells and spiral ganglion cells and a cochlear nerve. So sound, uh, the way we perceive sound is that sound tra travels through airwaves. They hit our tympanic membrane and they make our tympanic membrane, malleus and gestapes vibrate, and that moves um, fluid within the inner ear, that deflects the hair cells, and that transduces mechanical into electrical uh, potentials, uh, neural action potentials that go to the, along the, um, so it goes through the, the hair cells uh, to the spiral ganglion cells, to the cochlear nerve, and then uh, to the brain uh, for processing where it's uh, understood as sound. So anything at the cochlea or more um, distal or towards the brain, you can cause some sort of hearing, uh, sensory neural hearing loss. Um, as it is, most types of sensory neural hearing loss are caused by deficiency, an end process and a, and a deficiency of, of hair cells. So those are the cells that transduce mechanical into electrical signal. So noise-induced hearing loss, ototoxicities, et cetera. Some of these might, the hair cell loss might be secondary. It might be a striovascularis injury, for example, but ultimately most of these have an end pathway where they lead, where they have a hair cell insult. The reason a cochlear implant specifically works for most people is a cochlear implant bypasses absent or missing damaged hair cells. They stimulate the spiral ganglion cells, cochlear nerve uh, directly. And so that way, that's why it works with more, most people. There are some other conditions that can cause sensorineural hearing loss that aren't necessarily related to hair cells or the inner ear. You can have auditory neuropathy where you have dyssynchronous signal uh, process, sent from the cochlea and along the cochlear nerve to the brain. You can have retrocochlear pathology, such as an acoustic neuroma, for example, or vestibular schwannoma, for example, that's pushing on the vestibular nerve. Or you could have a central processing disorder. All those things can contribute to it. Interestingly, uh, many times, and contrary to what you'd intuitively think, uh, many of these conditions are still rehabilitated with a cochlear implant. We've found more and more that patients with vestibular schwannomas, particularly if they've only had radiation or observation, uh, respond pretty well to a cochlear implant. Um, and even sometimes after surgery, patients with auditory neuropathy uh, can often have, uh, because the cochlear implant provides a superphysiological electrostimulation, it often resynchronizes or resets that asynchronous nerve along, uh, signal along the cochlear nerve. And for some situations with central processing, a patient can still benefit significantly from a cochlear implant. And you mentioned spiral ganglion cells. Where are those located? So you have the uh, vestibular cochlear nerve leaving the pons, uh, going into the IC, and then it, when it gets to the cochlea, it will kind of fan out along the medialis, and um, that's where that one single cable of the cochlear nerve starts to fan out into these small appendages or ends of the um, cochlear nerve. 
spiral ganglion cells are located distally within the medialis. Um, there's something called the canal of Rosenthal, where a lot of these terminal appendages of the cochlear nerve fan out uh, before they go into the uh, and innervate along their dendritic appendages into the organ of Corti. And so that's what you're probably stimulating directly is your spiral ganglion cells. And different disease processes can uh, affect hair cells and primarily or secondarily affect your total spiral ganglion cell counts. Moving on to workup, when you see a patient in clinic who seems like they might be a good candidate for cochlear implantation, what's the first step at workup? So sometimes a patient's referred directly in for a cochlear implant assessment. The outside provider thought that they would be a good candidate, and they go straight to cochlear implant testing. But also pretty commonly, a patient will come in just with an audiogram with a chief complaint of sensory neural hearing loss, and you have to make that first step yourself. Are they a potential candidate or not? As a general rule of thumb, so just to back up a little bit, um, the first assessment for somebody with hearing loss in the ENT clinic, in the audiology clinic, is an audiogram. An audiogram uh, includes behavioral tone testing or pure tone audiometry where the patient is presented with different tones at different frequencies at different levels and they point out which frequencies they can, at what level they can hear and that's graphically presented in an audiogram. And the second is speech audiometry. And one of the main components of speech audiometry is word recognition scores. So monosyllabic words are presented to the patient. Um, and the patient should respond to those, and the number they have correct is your word recognition score. As a general rule of thumb, people who scored less than 50% on word recognition score testing on routine speech audiometry are in the ballpark of where you should consider uh, the possibility of uh, benefit from a cochlear implant. It's a good general rule of thumb. You have to remember that the audiogram is separate from more formal cochlear implant candidacy testing. More for formal cochlear implant candidacy testing is much more involved. It's a much longer visit. Um, but the, the audiogram at the beginning is the first step to kind of think, is this person a candidate or not? And what's involved with the actual CI evaluation? There are specific tests, sentence scores, that kind of thing. So what's involved in that? So when a person goes into uh, audiological testing to determine if they're a candidate for cochlear implantation, uh, the first thing they'll do is they'll get their they'll uh, either have their own hearing aids tested or they'll get a pair of loaner hearing aids to make sure that they have the best hearing aids or the best hearing that they could obtain uh, with conventional hearing aids. It's in that setting they'll, they'll go into this testing. All, te all um, candidacy criteria require that the patient be tested in the, quote, best aided condition. After you've made sure their hearing aids are working well, you'll get a series of different tests, and the tests usually encompass word testing and sentence testing. All of this testing, or basically all of this testing, is performed using open-set speech recognition testing. That means that the patient doesn't get visual cues, and they also don't have a list or something else in front of them to, to, to pick from. So if you say car, they don't have a, a list of 10 words that include ball, boat, house, car, that they can choose from because, of course, your score would be higher. It's open-set, meaning they have to uh, come up with the word without any type of cue. So historically, we would use uh, testing such as HINT, or the, what's called the hearing and noise test, or the CUNY, uh, CUNY uh, testing. Right now, the most common tests that are used, with, at least within the United States, are CNC, which, are, uh, which stand for constant nucleus constant. They're monosyllabic, monosyllabic words. And sentence testing. The most common sentence testing used in the United States are AZ-Bio tests. And AZ-Bio tests are a little bit more difficult than HINT and CUNY testing, for example. 
And the reason is they're presented at a more typical speech um, rate, and they'll, they'll have different speakers at different times, which make it a little bit more difficult for the average um, person uh, to hear. But it also is more fair because it's replicating what a person might actually encounter in the real world. Uh, and so both word and sentence score testing uh, are uh, presented as a percent correct and what the person can present back without any visual cues and just hearing the, uh, the words alone. You usually present it in ear-specific and also best-aided condition. So we'll talk about the candidacy criteria in a little bit, but they're usually set in the phrase of in the ear to be implanted or the best-aided condition. And so you'll say left best-aided condition, right best-aided condition, and together what's the, the best hearing the person has. Uh, the last thing I want to point out is increasingly we're testing with background noise. So earlier in this podcast, I alluded to the fact that um, hearing an assessment or estimate of someone's degree of hearing loss is not really that accurate if you're just seeing them in a quiet um, clinical consultation. You're looking directly at them and they're getting visual cues and they can watch your lips moving, etc. Real-world listening more typically involves multiple talkers without being able to see the one talker's face very well with competing background noise, which can really be difficult for most of these patients. And so more and more, we're also testing in background noise to, to get a better assessment of how they're actually functioning. When we talk about testing in background noise, you'll see it commonly presented as plus 10 or plus 5 dB SNR. That's the signal to noise ratio. The lower the number, the more difficult. So five, plus 5 dB SNR is more difficult than plus 10 dB SNR. And um, this allows us to, again, as I said, test them in a more accurate way to determine if they're really uh, going to benefit from a cochlear implant and to understand how they're functioning in, a daily, in their daily life. Is there a role for imaging in cochlear implant candidacy? Absolutely. Um, I'll say that this is a controversial point, and there's no, there's no standard guideline, and there's no standard recommendation across all insurance carriers or Medicare. Um, it's more surge, surgeon preference. Um, I would say that that's kind of broadly under the umbrella of a medical surgical candidacy assessment. So we had just talked about audiological workup. The medical surgical workup includes imaging of some sort. So I, for adults, I almost always obtain just an MRI and not a CT scan. But I know other providers who will just get a CT scan and not get an MRI scan. And most, I guess I don't know for sure, but I would say that most providers don't always get, don't usually get both for adults in contrast to kids. The reason, um, the reasoning for my just getting an MRI, me just getting an MRI and not getting a CT scan is most of these adults have asymmetrical hearing loss to some level. And there's already an established guideline that if they have asymmetrical hearing loss, they should be getting an MRI anyways to look for retrochoclear pathology. So I think that most of them weren't getting one. But then on the MRI, I can look for inner ear malformations, which are pretty rare uh, for adult onset hearing loss, can occur, but pretty rare. Um, and I just don't need see the need for getting a CT scan. Other people, like I said, will just get a CT scan alone. A CT scan might be particularly beneficial if you are suspecting uh, a temporal bone inner ear malformation or if they've had multiple surgeries before. The other aspect that's really important to think about MRI and CT and or CT scan is the conditions where you're losing, um, where you're having ossification within the inner ear. And there's a couple conditions that can lead to that. And the three most common ones we talk about are labyrinthitis ossificans, postmeningitic. You can also get labyrinthitis ossificans after really bad, after acute otitis media, where you have bad labyrinthitis. There's different phases to labyrinthitis uh, labyrinthitis ossificans. 
Um, the first, after a person develops some hearing loss, they'll have early fibrosis, granulation tissue formation, and then over time, they'll have bony reaction and bony changes. A CT scan can underestimate cochlear uh, lumen patency because it's really only seeing bone formation well, whereas an MRI, and particularly on heavily T2-weighted MRI with submillimeter slice acquisitions, you can see the patency of the cochlea. Perilymph, just like the CSF on heavily T2-weighted imaging, should be bright white. And when you start to lose that signal, if it becomes muddy or dirty, we call it, um, or if you lose it altogether, you're worrying about your cochlear patency. So again, most commonly that's in the setting of labyrinthitis ossificans, but you can also get it with otosclerosis, with far advanced otosclerosis or cochlear otosclerosis. And you can also get it after trauma. So otocapsule fracture um, would be another situation where you might worry about cochlear patency. And the whole issue of cochlear patency is if the cochlea scar is shut, it's hard to get a electrode fully in there. And it also, um, just the ossification itself produces, uh, results in loss of spiral ganglion cells which may make your cochlear implant outcome suboptimal from that standpoint also. So long answer to your, to your question. We've talked about workup. We've talked about pathophysiology. Um, so what are the official criteria for someone to be an implant candidate? So that's evolving. It's a moving target. I think the best way to answer that is briefly talk about the evolution of candidacy criteria. So single-channel cochlear implants were first approved by the FDA in 1984, and the multi-channel cochlear implant was the first approved by the FDA in 1985. Um, that was approved for um, adults with bilateral profound sensorineural hearing loss. In the 1990s, children were approved for uh, cochlear implantation. And then the um, candidacy have continued to become more and more um, en encompassing or inclusive. So. Uh, as cochlear implant outcomes are improving, as the devices are better, as our selection is better, we're seeing better outcomes. Whenever you're thinking about implanting somebody, really the bottom line is, is a cochlear implant going to pro reliably provide them a better outcome than a hearing aid is? And as our outcomes are getting better, we're more and more likely to implant patients with more and more degrees of residual hearing. I think it's worth put, uh, pointing out several recent expansions in cochlear implant FDA labeling criteria. In 2014, the hybrid cochlear implant, the hybrid L cochlear implant, was first approved by the FDA for implantation. We'll talk about hybrid implantation a little bit more in a second. Uh, more recently, uh, just this past year, cochlear implantation for asymmetrical hearing loss and single-sided deafness was approved, which, in my opinion, is, is wonderful. It'll take a little bit of time before insurance carriers are covering it, but this is the first big step uh, towards getting, uh, allowing us to implant these patients. But uh, in that study, single-sided deafness was uh, described as normal hearing in one ear and contralateral ear having essentially profound hearing loss with less than 5% word recognition or sentence recognition. Then asymmetrical hearing loss was anything from um, mild to uh, moderate sensorineural hearing loss in the affected ear and profound hearing loss in the other ear. Again, that was just approved this past year, but it will take a little bit of time before insurance approval allows it. But the, the most common criteria that insurance carriers are using right now for adults is um, no better than 50% on sentence scores in the ear to be implanted and no better than 60% in the best aided condition and no better than moderate to profound sensorineural hearing loss. Those are the criteria for adults for what we call a conventional length cochlear implant electrode. Medicare is more restrictive. The current criteria for Medicare cochlear implantation is no better than 40% in the best aided condition on sentence scores 
and the person must have worse than moderate to profound sensory neural hearing loss. They don't, the Medicare criteria are somewhat vague in what they describe. Uh, the two areas that they're particularly vague on are they don't give ear-specific information, and they don't give anything about what type of sentences are, are being used and if there's background noise. So that allows for some latitude by the, on the provider's part to ensure that you're serving the needs of the patient the best way. So we've spent the first part of this episode talking about the candidate, the patient, the pathophysiology workup. And for the second part, I wanted to talk more about the technology and what a cochlear implant is, the procedure, and that kind of thing. Uh, Can we first start with you explaining what is a cochlear implant? Absolutely. So there's currently um, three FDA-approved cochlear implant manufacturers that provide devices within the United States. And there are some small variations between them, but they all really share common features that derive the functionality of a cochlear implant. The external components include a microphone, a sound processor, a transmitting coil, and the internal components include a radio frequency receiver, a microprocessor-based stimulator, and a multi-channel cochlear implant electrode. So uh, just real briefly, the external sound will come to the, you know, the sounds in the environment will come to the microphone. That'll get picked up and processed by the sound processor, and that'll go to the transmitting coil. The transmitting coil is that little circle that you'll see on everyone's temporal parietal scalp that is connected to the ear level processor. And that gets transferred through a transcutaneous radio frequency signal. So there's no wire between them or anything. It's through the RF signal that it goes to the internal device. When you think about the internal device, that little microcomputer, we usually refer to that as a receiver stimulator. Receiver in that it's receiving that that input from the external coil. And then a stimulator in that that little computer is taking that sound and sending them down preferentially down different channels. So if you think of what a cochlear implant electrode looks like, I think it will help you understand how it works. So all intra, the intracochlear portion of a cochlear implant electrode contains a, a single cable or single um, electrode, and within that are multiple contacts. Depending on the manufacturer, there's anywhere from 12 to 22 different contacts. Each one of those individual contacts is spaced out relatively evenly along the electrode, and each one of those contacts are independent of the, of the one right next to them. So you can send electrical current down just one of those and not the uh, not another one. And that allows you to preferentially stimulate different parts of the cochlea at different times, which gives you, uh, which is primarily responsible to your frequency that you're giving to the cochlea uh, when you stimulate. So there, each one of those contacts are individually hermetically sealed from one another or isolated from one another. When you think about how, the, how a cochlear implant works, you have to, once again, go back to the tonotopic distribution of the cochlea, that anatomy. And if you can recall, um, the basal part of the cochlea is responsible for high-frequency hearing loss, and the apical regions are responsible for low-frequency. And so just in the same way as the organ of cordy is stimulated by transducing um, mechanical and electrical signal through hair cells, when you sti- stimulate the spiral ganglion cells, the matchup isn't exactly the same as the tonotopic map for acoustic uh, stimulation, but it's relatively close uh, for spiral ganglion cell stimulation. So uh, that's how, I'd say in a nutshell, how a cochlear implant works and um, the different components of it. Can you describe the different types of cochlear implants? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you can break up or divide or talk about cochlear implants, probably broadly the best way to divide them up are conventional length cochlear implants and hybrid designs. 
conventional cochlear implants are just what the name implies. They're the ones that have been developed for a long time. They're usually for patients with more uh, degrees of hearing loss, although the line is blurring between it, between the two. But generally, the electrode goes in the cochlea at least 360 degrees, but more commonly 400 degrees or 500 degrees. And when I say degrees, that's number of times it goes around the cochlear, uh, around the cochlea itself. In contrast, hybrid cochlear implants use shorter, often thinner electrodes. The idea behind it all is that many patients with sensorineural hearing loss have preserved low-frequency hearing. And if you have really good low-frequency hearing, or even what we would call functional low-frequency hearing, but you have really bad high-frequency hearing, it'd be great if you could just stimulate the areas that were bad and save the parts that were good. And that's what the hybrid idea is. So the idea behind hybrid uh, cochlear implantation is that by putting in a shorter electrode that only goes around, uh, say, 270 degrees or, uh, or less than 360 degrees, is that you can preferentially rehabilitate the high-frequency hearing loss that's re that is caused by the uh, basal regions of the cochlea needing stimulation, but protect the apical regions that are responsible for low-frequency hearing. And so you give the patient the best of both worlds. They can um, use the cochlear implant for the high frequencies, and then they can use a hearing aid for the low frequencies. Hybrid stimulation is a situation where you're using a hearing aid and a cochlear implant in the same ear. That's different than bimodal stimulation. A lot of people confuse that. Bimodal stimulation is where you use a cochlear implant in one ear and a hearing aid in, in the contralateral ear, which also has benefit. Now, when I presented that, it, would make, it might make the listener think that anybody with a lot of low-frequency hearing would only be implanted with a hybrid device, and anybody with, who had profound hearing loss would be implanted with a conventional device. But I have to say that the line is blurring a lot. A lot of centers are only using conventional-length cochlear implants, even for patients with significant degrees of residual hearing, because even in, um, when a, with an experienced cochlear implant surgeon, when performed very carefully, you can still preserve hearing in a lot of patients. So the general rule of thumb is that you can preserve low-frequency acoustic hearing by at, at the one-year time point with a hybrid device at about six, in about 66 to 70% of people. Most of the literature would show that with a conventional-length cochlear implant, you can still save hearing in about 50% of patients. So the difference is about 15 or 20%. But the advantage, potential advantage of using a conventional-length cochlear implant in that population is if they continue to have uh, progressive hearing loss, and they lose their low-frequency hearing, they can still be remedied by using, uh, by continuing to use the same device, and they wouldn't necessarily need to change to a different, uh, different electrode. Or perhaps you do lose the hearing during your surgery, and they're not left with a shorter cochlear implant electrode. They'll cover more of the cochlea by having a longer electrode and provide more thorough electrical stimulation per, for usually which provides uh, better performance overall. And can you briefly describe the approach to cochlear implant? What does the procedure consist of? So the, the surgical procedure is performed under general anesthesia. It usually requires about an hour to two hours. It involves a small incision behind the ear. Most of the time you don't have to shave any hair, or if you do, a limited amount of hair. Uh, you expose the mastoid cortex. You perform a cortical mastoidectomy with antrotomy. You see the lateral semicircular canal and the incus. These serve as your landmarks to open the facial recess. The facial recess is an artificial anatomical corridor. It's not natural. You, you make the opening yourself, and it's between your facial nerve, which is located posterior medially, and your tympani nerve, which is located lateral, anterolaterally. This gives you a window. Usually you're using a, a size 2 diamond drill to go through there, so it gives you an estimate about the size of it. It's about 2 millimeters or a little bit smaller. And then you can see the round window. The round window is located uh, below the oval window by several mil millimeters. 
It's located just kind of inferior to your pyramidal eminence. You, most of the time, you'll drill off the bony overhang of the round window niche to see your full round window membrane. There's often a pseudomembrane or mucosa sitting over the top that can fool people sometimes. You can also have a, a real prominent intracochlear air cell tract that might fool people also, but it should be you know, immediately below your pyramidal eminence and, and uh, very close to your oval window. Then there's two ways you can put the cochlear implant electrode in, or actually I should back up and say there's technically three ways. Um, historically, it was out, cochlear implantation was always performed through a cochleostomy. Originally, cochleostomies were performed basically anywhere on the promontory. You just drill till you saw an opening and you put the electrode in. But as you might imagine, that can result in significant cochlear trauma. And so uh, more and more people, are, uh, surgeons are, have found that if you put the uh, cochleostomy inferior to the round window or anteroinferior, you're more likely to enter the correct part of the cochlea. And I'll talk about that in a second. The other way of putting it in the cochlea is just going through the round window membrane. This has become more popular, particularly as electrodes have become smaller and smaller. You can uh, put most of today's conventional cochlear implants through the round window membrane without any difficulty. Sometimes you have to perform what's called an extended round window approach, or some people call it a marginal cochleostomy. I think that those are two synonymous terms. Um, and that's basically you're opening the round window and you're drilling off the anterior inferior lip of the round window to just, just to make a bigger opening. Your goal for electrode insertion is to put the entire electrode within the scala tympani. If you remember cochlear anatomy, you'd remember that there's three scala. There's a scala tympani, scala media, and scala vestibuli. The scala tympani is located, um, if you look at the, you know, that cross-section of the cochlea, the scala tympani is located inferiorly. Then there's the interscalar partition that's, con uh, that's encompassed by the osteospiral lamina and the basilar membrane. That kind of separates your inferior compartment, which is the scala tympani, from your superior compartment. The superior compartment is comprised of the cochlear duct, which is also called scala media, and also your scala vestibuli. The uh, scala media is located uh, between your basilar membrane and Reisner's membrane, and superiorly you have uh, your scala vestibuli. A lot of data has shown, uh, at least recent data has shown, that if you can put the electrode fully in the scala tympani, you're more likely to preserve natural acoustic hearing, and you're probably better, you provide better electrical stimulation as well. And I've heard about different types of electrodes being perimedialar or lateral wall. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah, uh, you'll hear a lot, particularly in the last 10 years, about the different types of electrode designs. Besides being shorter or longer, uh, what we call a conventional hybrid, um, are the natural shape of the electrode. So there's perimedialar electrodes, and those are ones that are also commonly called medialar hugging electrodes. And the idea is that, the, that the, there's memory built into the electrode where they naturally hold close to the medialis. Um, there's a couple characteristics that define those versus lateral wall. The other, the other type is lateral wall electrodes, and they, ha they are naturally very flexible but straight electrodes, meaning if you pull them out of the, sh out of the sheath, they'd want to sta stand straight, and the perimedialars will naturally want to curve. You'd wonder how you can get a perimedialar electrode with into the cochlea when it's already curving. Well, they, most of the time they have an internal system, uh, that, an internal stylet, and more recently they can have an external sheath. And that allows you to advance it through the what what's uh, a more straight part of the basal turn of the cochlea, and then start to curl around the medialis. There's also a third type of design, and there, it's called the mid-scala design. That has a precurve to it, and it does hug the medialis a little bit more. I kind of I really do classify that as a perimedialar design, even though it's called a mid-scala design. Um, there are some potential advantages between the two. I would say most commonly now, and the pendulum swings back and forth all the time, 
Um, but the most, uh, most commonly now, people are performing round window electrode insertions using lateral wall designs, and it's, there's probably less trauma related to that. We'll talk about both of those in a second, but there are, again, advantages and disadvantages to both. So the advantages of, the theoretical advantages of a perimedialar electrode are they put the electrode closer to the spiral ganglion cells, which probably gives more specific stimulation, and uh, theoretically it might give uh, better um, speech perception outcomes, although practically that hasn't been really consistently demonstrated in any study. Because it, it's putting the electrode right on the, on the um, medialis, you also theoretically have more efficient energy use, meaning you don't have to have such high levels of stimulation. Um, very limited potential benefit, I think, from that standpoint. There has been data to show that um, electrode impedances are less erratic um, than using lateral wall electrodes, which may have some benefit. The uh, primary benefits of a lateral wall electrode are that they probably limit trauma more. So they are uh, ju just very slowly inserted over time. They'll follow the natural curvature of the cochlea. In contrast to the perimedial electrodes, they use uh, marker markers. So when you're inserting it, you look at a marker and you start to deploy the the, st uh, the stylet or the sheath, and that presupposes that all cochlea have the same size basal electro or basal turn. They have the same uh, dimensions, cross-sectional area, and everything else. It's a one-size-fits-all with the perimedialar design versus a lateral wall electrode, which is passive. And so in my opinion, and most of the studies would also demonstrate that lateral wall electrodes are safer for, or better for hearing preservation overall. But again, I I'll say it's a, it's a very contra uh, controversial aspect. And what are some of the risks involved with surgery? So fortunately, this is uh, quite a routine surgery that's performed uh, very often at many high-volume centers. Unfortunately, the anatomy is very straightforward in most adult cochlear implants. You're operating through a well-pneumatized mastoid. Usually there's no cochlear malformations, and most patients don't have chronic ear disease. But there are some complications associated with it. The overall risk of wound infection is 1 or 2 percent in adults. The risk of hematoma is probably about 1 percent. Some people uncommonly can have chronic uh, surgical site pain. That's under 1 or 2 percent. And some people have persistent vestibular symptoms. Having transient dizziness is not overly uncommon, but to, to have somebody say that they have permanent long-term dizziness after cochlear implantation is uncommon, but it can occur. The risk of permanent facial nerve paralysis is less than 0.1% by most large series, and the risk of temporary or transient facial nerve paralysis is probably 1% overall, and it's usually not related directly to a direct facial nerve injury, but a secondary inflammation, which is sometimes hypothesized to be a secondary reactivation of a herpes virus, um, much like kind of like a Bell's palsy can happen. You can also have post-operative meningitis. There are three main risk factors for developing meningitis after cochlear implantation. That's age under five or six. That's when recurrent otitis media is most common. Having a cochlear malformation, and particularly any that result in uh, incomplete partition or an abnormal communication between the subarachnoid space and the inner ear. Probably the best example of this is an IP3 or gusher, excellent gusher type malformation. Um, but many of the malformations can result in an increased risk of meningitis. And then lastly, the use of, uh, historically, uh, the, the use of a uh, electrode positioner. In the early 2000s, there was an implant manufacturer that used a positioner that was meant to push the electrode closer to the medialis to get some of those theoretical advantages of a perimedialar electrode that we already talked about. That resulted in an area for otitis media uh, or infection to leak into the inner ear, and it would cause ascending meningitis in a group of patients. So in, a, in children, there's an elevated risk of meningitis, although it's still very, very, very rare today. 
Um, in adults, the risk is even less. In adults, the risk of acquiring post-implantation me- um, meningitis in a normal-shaped cochlea is less than one in a thousand. And that risk can be either f- even further reduced or mitigated by following the Center for Disease Control recommendations for pneumococcal vaccination prophylaxis. So currently, the CDC recommends that an adult or in children undergoing cochlear implantation receive a Pneumovax vaccination as well as the PCV13 vaccination. They cover different strains, but it's the same uh, bug, pneumococcal um, pneumonia, uh, that causes pulmonary infections that can also cause otitis media and meningitis. And so that's a, a good way that uh, the risk for meningitis can be lowered. The risk of having a device failure is separate. So in children, the risk of having a device failure is a little bit higher because children are a little bit more likely to fall and hit their head on something or break their device. In adults, the risk is something that increases with time. It's an electronic device, and just like anything else, the the longer it's been around, the more likely it is to fail. Uh, Overall, the risk at 10 years of having a a hard device failure that requires replacement is 2% or less, and it's highly dependent on how you define device failure um, and how long a person's been followed up. And when we talk about outcomes, uh, how do patients generally fare following cochlear implantation, and are there any factors related to the patient that might portend better or worse outcomes? Yeah, those are very important questions. Um, I think when you look at outcomes, it all goes back to appropriate selection. So you're identifying patients who are more likely to benefit. If you're implanting a lot of people who have pretty good hearing, you're risking having them not get a lot better with a cochlear implant versus people with more hearing loss, you're more likely to see uh, more significant benefits. But if you're uh, implanting conventional co- conventional cochlear implant candidates, um, I would say over 80 or I would say over 90% of patients are doing better than their preoperative scores. A large number of, a large percentage of patients are able to talk over the telephone uh, with their device. I think maybe one of the best ways to answer your question is, so what's the average CNC and AZ bioscore before cochlear implantation, and what are those average scores after cochlear implantation, and what can you get for sound uh, perception? So as we talked about earlier, most patients who are cochlear implant candidates have moderate to severe or moderate to profound sensory hearing loss. A cochlear implant will usually reinstate normal pure tone levels. So you, you can take uh, those that really bad hearing and bring it up to uh, being able to detect very even quiet sounds, even in the high frequencies. But more importantly is word and sentence recognition. So there's a, several studies. Uh, one, center, uh, one study that's coming from our center and also a previous study from Vanderbilt has shown that the average person who's implanted with a cochlear implant has less than 10% on word and sentence scores in the ear to be implanted, which is really remarkable when you think about it because... Our guidelines stipulate they have to have less than 50%. So that means that we're really, it further emphasizes the idea that we're implanting people way too late with much worse scores from when they might benefit from actually getting implanted. So again, if you think somebody might be a candidate, send them for testing. There's a good chance they are. But if again, if preoperative scores are to be implanted less than 10% CNC and AZ-Bio, the average scores after implantation are approximately 60% on CNC word scores and about 75% on AZ-Bio sentences. So that's about a six times increase in CNC scores and about a seven times increase on average for AZ-Bio scores. So that's a, that's a pretty big improvement for most patients. There are some things that might help you predict the outcome, but equally important is the, fact, is the observation that we're still pretty poor at predicting who's gonna do well and who's gonna do bad. The traditional uh, prognostic indicators for having a poor outcome was a long duration of deafness. So if you're an adult and you have prelingual hearing loss, you're not going to do very well with an implant. If you have 
meningitis, particularly with ossificans, you have a poor outcome. And there's been different theories as to why that is, but one of them is that it's hard to get the full a full cochlear implant electrode insertion. But separately, the, the spiral ganglion cells are probably poorer in that population. Patients who have cognitive impairment and central processing disorders will have more difficulty understanding that sound. There is a clinical pearl that I think is worth mentioning in that uh, for helping to identify these patients. And it's not it doesn't work perfectly, but it should heighten your suspicion for cognitive impairment. On pre-implant testing and even post-implant scores, if a person scores, so generally a person should score better on sentence testing than they should on word testing. The reason is a word has no context around it. If I just say ball, it's harder to repeat ball than if I said I was bouncing the ball. Because if you just heard I was bouncing, you would know that the next word was probably ball and not hall for example. And so that context helps most people who have good central processing make up for gaps. So the average person who has average or you know good central processing will score better on sentences. If you have a person who scores really similarly on sentence and word scores, you should worry about it. And if you have somebody that scores even higher on word scores and sentence scores, that should be a red flag in your mind that they're, they're, this person might have central processing disorder. Those are probably the main predictors of uh, poor outcome after cochlear implantation. But I also think it's worth equally emphasizing that um, even in the best multivariate models and the best studies, we can still only account for 20 to 40 percent of the variance in outcomes for cochlear implant patients, meaning we're not very good at really predicting who's going to do well and who's going to not uh, do as well with an implant. I'd next like to move into our summary, but before I do, is there anything else you wanted to add? I think that summarizes cochlear implants uh, pretty well. Uh, no, I don't have anything else to add. So in summary, um, patients presenting for a cochlear implant evaluation commonly present with progressive hearing loss over time and hearing aids not working over several years. Workup includes audiometry with pure tone uh, thresholds and word recognition scores, and then CI evaluation, which includes CNC word scores and AZ bio sentence scores. The actual cochlear implant is made up of a microphone and processor with a transmitting coil that transmits the sound signal to a receiver stimulator and then the channel electrode that's implanted. The cochlear implant works by stimulating the spiral ganglion cells and the cochlear nerve. There are conventional types of cochlear implants, which are standard length or the full length of the cochlea, and hybrid types, which are shorter in an effort to uh, preserve the function of uh, low-frequency hair cells. And then there are also perimodular and lateral wall electrodes that uh, could theoretically be beneficial for different reasons. The actual procedure involves a mastoidectomy and then approach through the facial recess and placement of the uh, electrode into the round window and scale of tympani. Risks for this procedure include facial nerve weakness, meningitis, and device infection, but all of these risks are very low. Patients tend to do worse if they've had a long duration of deafness, have a history of meningitis, or cognitive impairment, but overall, post-operative scores come up significantly for both word and sentence scores in the tune of six to seven times improved. Dr. Carlson, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think that summarizes everything well in a nutshell. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I now want to move into the question asking uh, portion of the episode. Recall that I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds for you to press pause or to contemplate the answer, and then I'll give the answer. So the first question is, what is the audiologic workup for CI candidacy? 
Generally, patients are worked up uh, for hearing loss, starting with a standard pure tone audiometry and word recognition scores. Uh, provided that their word recognition is usually less than 50%, that will be a tip-off that they should undergo CI candidacy, which includes additional uh, workup like CNC word scores and AZ bio sentence scores. For the next question, what are the guidelines for cochlear implantation today? To succinctly state it, uh, the guidelines for receiving a cochlear implant are that a patient has to have less than 50% sentence scores in the ear to be implanted and less than 60% in the best aided condition, and they cannot be better than moderate to profound hearing loss. In terms of specific Medicare guidelines, they need to have moderate to profound hearing loss with less than 40% in the best aided condition. And again, these guidelines are somewhat vague and allow uh, different interpretations and signal to noise ratios applied. And finally, for our last question, in regard to scalar location, what is the ideal location for placement of a cochlear implant electrode? Again, when we discuss the procedure of uh, cochlear implantation, this involves a mastoidectomy and facial recess approach. Um, the ideal location for the electrode is in the scala tympani, and this can be accessed through the round window, through an extended round window approach, or a cocleostomy if clinically required. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.